WHO elects against ruling monkeypox a public health emergency of international concern, but the U.S. will roll out 300,000 doses of vaccine to combat a growing outbreak. The FDA approves an Omicron-specific COVID-19 vaccine booster for the fall, as BA4 and BA5 cause cases and hospitalizations to climb. The FDA has banned Juul from selling its products in the United States. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. I remember seeing my first patient with HIV when I was in medical school, a young man who had contracted the virus congenitally, meaning he lived with it his entire life. He was in his teens and had stopped taking his medications, the medications he'd had to take since he was born. HIV is a disease of the white blood cells, the immune system. It literally stops your body from being able to defend itself from infections that a healthy immune system would swat away easily. But this young man's viral load was so high that his white cell count had been decimated. He was struggling to even swallow, because he had a terrible yeast infection of the mouth and throat, something someone with a functioning immune system would never have to worry about. One of the attending physicians with whom I was working was in his 60s. He trained at this hospital, and he told me he hadn't seen a case this bad since the early 90s, back when HIV was still a death sentence for most patients. Today, it's more a chronic disease, well-managed if people living with HIV take their medications. My patient had lost nearly 20 pounds, so much weight that I could see his heartbeat through his ribs on physical exam. He'd been complaining about the food at the hospital, which, to be fair, was awful. So after clearing it with my attending, I picked him up some ice cream on the way to the hospital the next evening on the way to a night shift. As he slowly savored it, I asked him why he stopped taking his medicine. I'm sick of the label, he said. This was 2014, decades since the worst of the HIV epidemic, and yet it continues to carry a crippling stigma along with it. HIV first emerged in the 80s among gay men. Once vibrant and healthy, people watched their sons, brothers, and lovers deteriorate over a matter of months. Thousands died. And because of LGBTQ stigma, the disease didn't command nearly the attention from the media, the scientific and medical communities, or politicians that it deserved. Many were openly scornful because it was a disease of gay men. In response to the unwillingness by institutions of power to take this issue seriously, a group of activists led by legendary organizer Larry Kramer came together at the Lesbian and Gay Community Services Center in New York and founded the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, or ACT UP, an organization dedicated to doing all they could to, well, ACT UP, to force people in power to take the AIDS crisis seriously and to hold power accountable for its failure. One of the first people whose attention they got was this guy. But it it gives me a great deal of pleasure and excitement to, to, to talk about AIDS because it really is one of the few, or actually one of the only Uh, subjects of all of the subjects that we tackle throughout the years uh, where you really have to change your lecture every month. In case you didn't recognize that Brooklyn accent, that's Dr. Anthony Fauci, 37 years ago in a lecture about HIV. Because of how slow biomedical research was moving at the time, he became a target of many of ACT UP's actions. In 1990, more than a thousand ACT UP members protested at the NIH, specifically targeting Dr. Fauci, who is the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which he still directs. One op-ed written by Kramer opened up with the following line, I call you murderers, an open letter to an incompetent idiot. But he also became one of the group's most important allies, working with them to engage their input in the planning of trials. And after that protest, the NIAID sped up approvals for various research projects and worked to include a more diverse group of subjects in research studies. One of the most innovative arms of ACT UP, it's the subject of today's show, Grand Fury. This was the graphic design arm of ACT UP and the AIDS movement, bringing the movement some of its most thought-provoking imagery and design. 
My guest today is Jack Lowry. His book, It Was Vulgar, It Was Beautiful, is a history of Grand Fury and a reminder of how far we've come in the movement against HIV AIDS and anti-LGBTQ stigma. Here's Jack Lowry. Can you introduce yourself for the type? My name is Jack Lowry, and I'm the author of It Was Vulgar and It Was Beautiful, How AIDS Activists Use Art to Fight a Pandemic. Jack, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to chat with us. I really appreciated your book because it engages with the intersection of a, a number of really important issues. The first is the activism of um, the gay community uh, in the face of a terrible pandemic, though we don't call it that, uh, in HIV, and then the use of art toward civil disobedience. And I, you bring all those things together beautifully and tell the story of an organic movement rising up to claim both the equality implicitly of the gay community and at the same time to recognize that in order to do that, you just had to shake up the status quo all toward the idea of scientific research. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, as, a, as a scientist, people don't really get excited about scientific research. Um, and you had this moment in history when that was about saving lives. And um, the folks at, at Grand Fury and, and ACT UP understood that. So I, I want to just step back for a second. What, what motivated you uh, to write this book? The impetus for this book was, um, it was very shortly after the, the 2016 presidential election. I was doing a lot of self-reflection and thinking about, you know, what I was doing with my life, what, you know, what I was spending my time writing about, who I was spending my time with. And, you know, those kinds of deeper questions that had become kind of, those questions felt more prescient than they had a couple of months before. And I was aware of ACT UP and ACT UP's strategies and ACT UP's use of graphics beforehand. But after the 2016 election, I started to really research ACT UP more, read about ACT UP more. And I, it was sort of the spring of next year, I was watching a documentary um, an old, old documentary made by a German filmmaker called Silence Equals Death. And there was just a quick reference to this group, Grand Fury. And I I realized in retrospect that I actually wasn't that far into researching ACT UP, but I thought I was at the time. And so it struck me, I was like, oh, I've never, I've never heard of these people. I've never seen anything written about them. And so I started to look up who they were, you know, what they were doing uh, or what they had done, um, you know, what had become of its members. Um, and I was struck by how many of these posters that I had seen in footage of ACT UP's demonstrations and in reading about ACT UP had kind of all come from this one core group of people. And I thought to myself, this is interesting, you know, maybe there's something here, like maybe there's something to write about. Because, um, you know, then I started to look for a book about Grand Fury. And, you know, if you don't, you can't find the book that you want out in the world, you know, maybe you're the person to go write it then. So I started to look into what had happened to Grand Fury's members to see if they would be, you know, um, available to be interviewed. And at the time I was, um, I just started my, uh, I just started graduate st school at Columbia and was about to start teaching in the English department there. Um, and it turned out that one of Grand Fury's members, Tom Kalin was, um, was on the floor above me. Wow. I'd walked by his office probably, hundred times and so of course being a millennial I couldn't just go like knock on his door I had to like send him an email and like ask it you know if he would let me interview him um, and he thankfully said yes and that was one of the first interviews that I did for the book and that was in May of 2017 and it kind of just went from there hmm. so you discover this uh, incredible movement of art for activism for equality for science 
And uh, you, you said about um, interviewing members and, and writing this book. What became clear to you in the process of writing the book that wasn't altogether obvious when you'd finally crystallized the idea that you're going to write a book about this group? I think one of the things that became increasingly obvious to me and one of the things that I still find really compelling about Grand Fury's work is what it set out to do and how it was very different from most of the political posters and sloganeering that we're a company, you know, that we're used to. Um, most political posters or most political slogans are about advocating for or against a specific legislative issue. Mm. So, you know, no on Prop 8 mm. is like, you know, obviously a very, you know, famous one from like my childhood or um, Medicare for all is a you know very obvious like slogan. my guy and those. <laughs> yes. And those slogans are very important. They are. Um, you know, they communicate demands that people are making and they communicate policy, the demands for policy that will improve people's lives. But it's not the only kind of political sloganeering. What I started to notice about Grand Fury's work was that oftentimes they weren't so much interested in getting you to vote yes or no on a particular issue. But they were, what they were trying to get you to do was to think differently about the AIDS crisis or about people with AIDS. One of my favorite Grand Fury projects is a poster that reads, All People with AIDS Are Innocent. And it was made in response to something that conservative politicians would often say at the time. They would describe hemophiliacs and children with AIDS as being AIDS's most innocent victims. And that's mm. a phrase that implies that some people are more deserving of AIDS than others. And presumably those, you know, according to these politicians, those people are presumably, you know, queer people, intravenous drug users. Um, and so this slogan, all people with AIDS are innocent, that Grand Fury put out. It's only real demand that it's making is that you think differently about people with AIDS. That you don't think of some people with AIDS as being more deserving of this illness than mm. others. And I think that that's a really... In, and that's what I find so fascinating about Grand Fury is that they, were they weren't advocating for policy. They were advocating for mindset shifts. But if you think about what happens once somebody makes that mindset shift, think about all the policies that come afterwards. If you think that somebody has, who has AIDS deserves it, hmm. then you're going to be treating that person very differently than if you don't, than if you see their illness without judgment. Right. Now that 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 is um it's profound cuz you know what you're what you're speaking to is sort of the recognition of the art in political art, right? Because great art uh invokes a set of feelings that change the that changes the very paradigm within which you think you're engaging. And you're right. Most polo political sloganeering uh is really about one particular space and time and one yes, no uh, goal of advocacy. Whereas this is about trying to change a mindset about um, who the people who live with AIDS or HIV AIDS are, and also what the nature of our responsibility to health and disease is. And that, that's, a really, that's a really profound point. And I, and I think sometimes that's the, the thing that's sometimes lost in policy debates is that a lot of this is about um, the place where emotions and paradigms meet. And, and that's where Grand Fury really wanted to live. I, I want to step back and ask you, you know, we haven't really defined who Grand Fury is. 
Um, so you can can you tell us a, a little bit about Grand Fury, about what they are, about uh, how they uh, they came to be? Yeah, Grand Fury was a collective of ten people, all of whom were members of ACT UP, which stands for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Um, ACT UP was an activist group that was formed in 1987 in New York City. And the way that ACT UP organized itself was a kind of structuring system called affinity groups. And affinity groups were based on, they were like group, they were like smaller cells within this kind of organization. And often, sometimes affinity groups were just like groups of friends. And they'd all go to like their demonstration together. Other times, affinity groups were formed because a certain group of people had a certain expertise. A lot of the members of, of who became part of Grand Fury were either art directors or graphic designers or working artists or photographers, architects, filmmakers. These were people who had a very particular set of skills. And so Grand Fury allowed them allowed this group of people to do the thing that they were best at in service of ACT UP. And that was a kind of guiding principle throughout a lot of ACT UP's activities. Um, It was an organization that very much encouraged people to tap into whatever skill set they already had. And so a lot of times when people came to ACT UP, they would wind up doing whatever they did in their day job just for ACT UP. So, Mm. you know, people who were accountants or stockbrokers or worked in finance, those were the people who wound up, you know, being the treasurers and, you know, balancing ACT UP's checkbook and doing fundraising. People who worked in PR and magazines would often do um, media blitzes in advance of ACT UP's Mm -hmm. demonstrations. And Grand Fury is a kind of another example of that, of this is a group of graphic designers who lended their skill set in the same way that, you know, everybody else did. Hmm. And was that was that pretty unique for the time uh, to be able to sort of engage people where they were and allow them to leverage their own native skills and interests toward an outcome? Did they innovate that or, or was that a model that was um, that was quite common at the time? It's a good question. I can, you know, I can't think of another movement off the top of my head that really kind of organized itself in this way. But that could just be my own lack of knowledge. It, it doesn't mean that it had never been done before. Um, But it was also kind of like, I think it was less born out of like a particular influence from, you know, another group and more born out of the sense of urgency that was presenting itself in the moment. This is a time period where people who are testing HIV positive are being told that they have two years to live. And oftentimes they wind up living for much less time. Um, HIV testing was not commonplace at this time because there was a big push to quarantine people with AIDS indefinitely. So you have this group of people who no one in the room really knows who for certain who is and isn't going to be sick uh, unless you've already started to develop symptoms. Most of the people in the room have lost partners or many, many friends to AIDS already by the time that ACTUP's formed. Um, And there's just a real sense of urgency there. And I don't think that you can really recreate that. It was just, it was very organic. It was very much like we need to do something. 
And somebody raises their hand and says, well, I know how to do this one thing. And somebody else says, well, great, I can put together a, a, I can put together a press release for that. It, I think it less emerged out of a sense of, it, I don't think it was a very conscious thing of like, oh, we should really get people to, you know, plug into whatever they want to do. It's, it was just a kind of organic thing of like, you know, do what you're good at. And, you know, kind of, it was a more run and gun philosophy. It's like, do what you can with what you have where you are. We're back with more of my conversation with Jack Lowry. Why was art and graphic design such a powerful tool around shaping the narrative? You talked a little bit about um, the importance of changing paradigms, but what in this particular moment and about this particular movement allowed their art to be so powerful? I think one of the big things, uh, one of the one way of answering this question is to talk about branding and to talk about the way in which ACT UP branded itself. Um, ACT UP was very conscious of the fact that if you get a bunch of photographers or videographers to a demonstration from the press and you give them compelling footage, they're going to use that compelling footage for you know their nightly newscast or for their newspaper. And so it's a strategy that ACT UP kind of happened upon of like, oh, we can tell, like if we give if we create really compelling images of ourselves, if we give images of ourselves to the media, our messages will travel further. And so there were lots of ways in which ACT UP tried to, I don't want to use the word stage because that has a kind of pejorative connotation to it, but I mean, actually it kind of is what they did. They were staging really compelling images of themselves. And they were do, and I mean, you know, the image that's on the the cover of the book is of a guy named Kendall Morrison being arrested at a demonstration. An image that a photograph that was taken seconds after this wound up on the front page of the New York Times, and because it's such a compelling image, it's this guy who, I mean, he's surrounded by you know six, he's being dragged off by six police officers. He has no. There's no threat there. He's holding a poster and it, he has a t-shirt on. And they're, you know, there's not, both of them are Grand Fury, you know, uh, projects, by the way. And so it's one of those things of posters and graphics were just one way of helping create compelling images. I think the other thing that art really did for, and this particular kind of branding did for ACT UP, was that it made ACT UP very recognizable. Silence Equals Death, which is perhaps the best known graphic to come out of uh, ACT UP, it precedes Grand Fury by a couple of months, but was, you know, or actually about a year, but was very much instrumental in the formation of Grand Fury. Silence Equals Death is a very striking image. It's a black poster with a pink triangle, and it says Silence Equals Death in white text. And, you know, one of the members of Grand Fury said to me, think about 200 good-looking guys walking down the street wearing that T-shirt. It's kind of a photo op. Like, it looks, you just, you see it, and it's a striking image of all these people who are dressed the exact same way. They're all wearing the same T-shirt. Like, that's a really, really compelling visual 
Um, and I think the other thing that graphics did for ACT UP was that it was a way of creating media for queer people in a time where media was not being created, in which mainstream media was not showcasing queer people in a positive light. So something like Grand Fury's Kissing Doesn't Kill Project, which has, it's three couples kissing in profile, it's one gay, one lesbian, and one straight couple. You know, seeing, if you're an ACT UP member and you, you're walking down the street and you see that image appear, you feel seen in the world. You see, it's, it's a form of, it's a form of seeing yourself in the media. And it's also, you know, if you pass by somebody on the street and they're wearing like a Grand Fury t-shirt, like, you know, you're, you know that they're one of your own. You feel, you feel less alone when you, when you see an image like that. One of the most powerful pieces um, that you're alluding to here is in changing what we think of around norms. And, and civil disobedience is really powerful because it disrupts the usual uh, nature of a space to force you to consider what's not included there in the first place. And you open the book with a really uh, vivid description of an example of Grand Fury civil disobedience at the New York Stock Exchange. I was hoping you could um, describe that and, and tell us what was so powerful about that. Yeah, so at the time, so the year that we're talking about is 1989. At the beginning, the beginning of 1989, there's one approved medication for fighting HIV. It's called AZT. It's a failed cancer drug that's been repurposed for people with HIV. It has no long-term efficacy. It is basically kind of the efficacy that peaks after a couple of years. Um, it gives kind of short-term benefits, but nothing really in the long term. Um, and it's the only drug that's available, and it costs $10,000 a year. And so ACT UP decided to stage a series of demonstrations against Burroughs Welcome, the pharmaceutical company that manufactured AZT. And the stock exchange demonstration that you're, you're asking about, it actually wasn't the first demonstration against Burroughs Welcome. It was actually kind of the last one because it was the one that finally pushed them. But they had done several demonstrations up until this point, including, I mean, there were members of ACT UP who broke into the Burroughs Welcome offices with a set of power tools. And basically, they like they like nailed the doors shut in an office and like trapped themselves in there in protest of this, you know, of, of this exorbitant price that was being attached to the only medication that was available. And Bur literally being entrapped by the company. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they were going for that, but that, that's a good, I, I like that. I, I like that way of framing it. Um, and so Active kept hounding um, Burroughs Welcome to try to lower the price of AZT. And so what they finally decided to do was a demonstration at the New York Stock Exchange because Burroughs Welcome is a publicly traded company. And the demonstration was organized by, or largely conceptualized by an ACT UP member named Peter Staley. Peter is a very visible, well-known ACT UP member. He has a book called Never Silent. Um, that came out in October of last year. Um, and Peter had been a stockbroker um, for, I believe, J.P. Morgan Chase up until 
he learned that he was HIV positive and then he, you know, quit his job and, and joined ACT UP. And so he was the one who kind of conceptualized of this demonstration where him and five other people would break into the New York Stock Exchange to disrupt the ringing of the opening bell. And so what they did was they went down to the New York Stock Exchange and they kind of canvassed it. Like they tried to do reconnaissance basically. And what they noticed was that all the traders had these like badge ID numbers kind of tacked onto their jackets. And the security guard wasn't really checking anyone's credentials. It was sort of like, as long as you had this like tag on, you know, you could get in. And so Peter and I think six other people from ACT UP got together and they put on what they called business drag. And they like, you know, pieced together like, you know, their closest approximations to like, you know, what a Wall Street day trader would wear. And they like printed out these like fake ID cards and tried to get in and it worked. They mm. did, they decided to do like a test run and they kind of got inside and they're, you know, walking around on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and they see this balcony that's overlooking the floor of the exchange. And they sort of like, it, it goes off like, oh yeah, like, we can do something with this. Like we can sneak back in here. Like we can bring, we, we can do a demonstration. We can really disrupt this. And so what they decided to do was they made a banner that said, sell welcome, obviously in reference to Burroughs welcome, mm-hmm. the company who was the manufacturer of AZT. And then they had, they got all this fake cash that had been produced by Grand Fury. And it was like 20, 50, and $100 bills. And the bills had slogans on them that were like, fuck your profiteering. People are dying while you play business. Um, another one was wow. uh, white heterosexual men can't get AIDS. Don't bank on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Grand Fury gave these bills to Peter and the you know few other people that he was you know infiltrating the stock exchange with. And so they snuck in the morning of, and about a minute before the opening bell rang, they handcuffed themselves to the railing of this balcony. And as the bell was ringing, as the bell was about to ring, they unfurled their banner that said, sell welcome. And then they all pulled out marine fog air horns to drown out the sound of the opening bell to kind of announce like, you know, today is not going to be, you know, business as usual, as they would say. And then they threw all of this fake cash at these day traders that were standing down below. And it's probably one of the most well-known actions done by ACT UP for a few reasons. And the first is how quickly they were able to affect change. Three days later, Burroughs Welcome dropped the price of AZT. It was like the final thing that embarrassed them into doing this. The other thing that's really striking about this demonstration is that they did a really good job of coordinating with the press beforehand. So there was a, journal, there was a journalist at the Wall Street Journal named Marilyn Chase who they got in touch with beforehand and told her all about this demonstration. So she had this article that was all ready to go about the price of AZT, what was happening in the demonstration. And then what ACT UP did was, in addition to the guys who snuck up onto the balcony, they also had a photo- two photographers on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange taking photos of this. And they, as soon as they got their photos, they ran out, unloaded the film, passed it off to a runner who took their, the photos they had just taken to 
the offices of the Associated Press. Hmm. And so you see this like incredible planning that goes into it. You see this um, this coordination with the media. I mean, literally giving them these really compelling images and this really compelling story. Um, and I think the other thing that's really noteworthy about this is that this was like eight people who got together and did this. This was not a, and that's so, so different than the way that so many org demonstrations are organized today, where it's all about getting the biggest number of people to fully square or to, you know, a certain demonstration or a certain march. And that, you know, there's certainly something to be said about the efficacy, about um, how effective it can be when you get people to turn out in large numbers. But I think that ACT UP is a kind of very interesting corollary to that in that a lot of ACT UP's most well-known demonstrations were not thousands and thousands of people. It was like eight people who got together and decided to do this. And I think that's a really, and I think that's really compelling too. It says a lot about the power of planning and coordination and the power of putting your body on the line for something you believe in. And, you know, the, the idea uh, that we were talking about earlier about changing the way something looks, you know, you everybody... Even even today, though stock trading is done mainly online, you remember the pictures of these crazy day traders running around the New York Stock Exchange trying to buy and sell. And, and that's that's an image that you have in your mind. And the disruption of that kind of image to force people to think about what happens and what lies just underneath the kind of uh, true violence that is that is perpetrated just underneath is really where a lot of this power lies. I want to ask you, what do you think is the legacy of Grand Fury and, and ACT UP more generally? I mean, I think the the real legacy is that they made the world a much more livable place for queer people and people with AIDS. I, I mean, if you look at where, ACT, where the discussion around AIDS was when ACT UP first formed, California had propositions on uh, on its ballots in 1986 and 1988 that would permanently quarantine all people with AIDS, anyone who tested HIV positive. Um, by the time that ACT UP is at the height of its efficacy in 1990, 1991, 1992, they have pulled the conversation so far away from that. When Jerry Brown ran for president in 1992, he worked with ACT UP to create a 25-point plan to end the AIDS crisis. I mean, that's yeah. how, and that's that, that was in a matter of four years that ACT UP was able to, to change that. Um, so I think, you know, they really shifted the conversation around AIDS in this country about what should be done about it. That it shouldn't be about locking people up indefinitely, that it should be about giving these people health care, that it should be putting money and research into this. Um, if you look at, I think another legacy of ACT UP is that if you look at the amount of federal spending on AIDS research, the graph of that corresponds pretty closely to ACT UP's beginning and rise. I mean, once ACT UP mm. became a part of American life, it was like the money being put towards AIDS research began doubling and tripling every year. And it had pretty much been, it had been pretty stagnant before. And that increased funding in AIDS research ultimately brought about the medications that 
came to market in the mid 90s um, that make it possible to live a full, healthy life with HIV. Um, the average life expectancy for a person with HIV um, today is just two years short of what it is for an HIV negative counterpart. Um, and I think that that's directly because of ACT UP. There's nothing else that explains that dramatic, dramatic increase in AIDS funding. Um, I think ACT UP was also, for a lot of people, one of the first representations of queer people that they saw in the news. And especially something like Grand Fury's Kissing Doesn't Kill billboard, which includes, you know, a photo of um, of a gay couple and a lesbian couple kissing. I mean, for a lot, of, it's hard to imagine how shocking that image was at the time. Uh, I mean, that could be a Target ad today. But at the time, it was absolutely reviled by the right wing. And it was something that really spoke to a lot of really young queer people. And I think that, I, I think that, you know, those are all sort of, you know, those are kind of on a macro level, those are a lot of, uh, those are some of ACT UP's, that's, that's part of ACT UP's legacy. On a more micro level, there are a lot of policy initiatives that ACT UP was able to change and influence. Um, for years, the CDC did not include women in its definition of people who could have AIDS. And mm-hmm. ACT UP launched a four-year campaign to persuade them to start recognizing that women can get AIDS too. And that recognition had enormous consequences because you needed a CDC-defined definition of AIDS to access social security benefits, clinical drug trials. Um, it was a huge, huge win for millions and millions of women and you know other people who weren't being considered by the CDC as, you know, having AIDS. Active started, and Grand Fury was a huge part of that. Their pro- project, uh, Women Don't Get AIDS, They Just Die From It, appeared in bus shelters in Los Angeles and New York um, and really helped publicize the issue and really helped galvanize awareness for it. Um, and there are, you know, tons of other policy initiatives too. I mean, um, the Food and Drug Administration began approving um, HIV medications much, much more quickly both medications that attack the HIV virus itself and other medications that helped combat the opportunistic infections that were most common for um, for people with AIDS. And so, yeah, I mean, I think ACT UP, I mean, in short, ACT UP made the world a, a livable place for, for people with AIDS. Yeah, literally, literally saving lives. And the important thing to remember is that's not just here in the United States. That's that's abroad. A lot of the research that they advocated for turned into the medications that finally were being uh, manufactured abroad uh, as the, the 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 pandemic of of HIV/AIDS affected large swaths of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we're we're in this really uh, odd moment right now when it comes to uh, the LGBTQ community because on the one hand we've seen a lot of progress in you know everything from same-sex marriage to the repeal of Don't Act, Don't Tell to the level of, of acceptance and em- embrace um, in, in the general public as a function of a lot of what ACT UP uh, and Grand Fury had done. 
At the same time, uh, we're seeing a lot of backpedaling, particularly in red states, um, in anti-LGBTQ policies, whether it's the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida or a whole raft of anti-trans bills uh, that we've seen across the country. And at the same time, we're watching a somewhat insidious uh, pinkwashing campaign, whether it's, you know, the military or uh, it's, you know, you name the corporation that on the one hand gives to uh, anti-LGBTQ politicians and on the other, um, you know, uh, flies its, 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 its pride flag. As we think about that legacy of ACT UP, um, how should we be thinking about this moment? And, you know, if you could sort of channel uh, the people that you got to meet in the, in the researching of the book, how do you think they'd be feeling about this moment right now? I, I can tell you that they're very dismayed by by this moment. Um, I hear what you're saying about you know the, the strides that that queer people have made since the 80s and 90s, but things like gay marriage and you know being able to serve in the military are sort of a lot of the ACT UP folks aren't really like up at you know that thrilled about you know the sort of few advances that queer people have been able to mm. to win one of the really important lessons from act up is the importance of creating images that show the future you want mm. um, if you if you go back and look through um television um coverage news coverage newspaper magazines before act up they would always show people with aids in these really kind of dire situation, in these mm-hmm. really dire situations, it was they were always alone, um, you know, extremely sick, frail, no agency. These are people who are sick, and they're 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 clearly sick and dying. And that is, and I don't want to dismiss the reality of that. That that was, you know, what so so many people with AIDS did experience towards the end of their lives. But it's but what ACT UP did was say, this can't be the only image. We have to create other images of what people with AIDS look like. Mm-hmm. And so ACT UP starts making, as we were talking about earlier, it's really important to help create these images of people with AIDS advocating for themselves, of being in public, of not willing to just kind of die alone. And I think that that lesson of the importance of creating images of what you want the future to look like is something that I think still has a lot of potential for today, both with the the bills that you were talking about earlier and with a lot of other issues as well. I really appreciate you joining us to talk about ACT UP, about Grand Fury, about the use of art uh, to drive science, uh, to take on HIV AIDS and, and to empower the queer community. Uh, that was Jack Lowry. His book is, it was vulgar and it was beautiful. I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, and Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. As of Thursday last week, there have been 307 confirmed cases of monkeypox across 27 states in the United States. That's up nearly two-fold since the week before, suggesting that monkeypox is spreading rapidly. Across the world, there have been over 3,000 cases, 1,000 alone in the UK. But last week, the WHO chose not to issue a public health emergency of international concern over monkeypox, choosing instead to watch carefully. For their part, the Biden administration announced a plan to issue up to 1.6 million doses of vaccine to anyone who's worried about exposure. But here's where it gets complicated. The main vaccine, Genios, has limited availability. 
the administration will release 56,000 doses immediately, and they plan to make another 240,000 doses available over the coming weeks. Overall, it plans to release 750,000 doses by the end of the year. But the CDC's vaccination plan also allows local and state authorities to supplement vaccinations with an older vaccine called ACAM2000, which has far worse side effects, particularly in people who are immunocompromised. The vaccination plan is admittedly a bit of a mess. First, it doesn't define exactly who should get vaccinated and when. And without a robust approach to surveillance and high-risk communities, many who need a vaccine may not get one. Second, because this outbreak emerged in a community with a high risk of HIV and the immunocompromise that it causes, the lack of the early availability of the Genios vaccine could force people who could have bad side effects to take ACAM2000. All of this, of course, is happening under the threat of that never-event scenario that Professor Ramoyne laid out for us a few weeks ago, that monkeypox becomes endemic in U.S. rodent populations. That scenario gets likelier every single day. It keeps spreading in the population. And in another reminder that COVID is not over, now, the FDA's independent panel rather, of vaccine experts voted on Tuesday to recommend modifying the vaccine for the first time to specifically target Omicron. The FDA has approved an Omicron-specific COVID-19 vaccine booster for the fall. This is happening as BA4 and BA5, distant cousins of the original Omicron variant that hit us last winter, are enriching themselves and leading to higher rates of COVID cases and hospitalizations. Though the Omicron-specific vaccine was designed to target the original Omicron, it's been shown to mildly increase antibody titers to BA4 and BA5 too. Though the exact formulation remains unclear, the Omicron-specific vaccine is likely to be delivered as a bivalent vaccine, meaning it includes some of the original vaccine and some of the new Omicron-specific vaccines. This new booster is expected to be marginally more beneficial, though it does highlight an important question. Are we too far behind in our chase against a moving target? In a co-authored op-ed explaining his vote against the new vaccine in an FDA advisory panel, the director of the Vaccine Education Center, Dr. Paul Offit, raises the important point that updating our vaccine arsenal will cost money Congress has proven uninterested in spending. Perhaps it'd be better to invest the additional money into research for a more comprehensive vaccine rather than an updated one that already seems outdated. Finally, this happened a few weeks ago. After a two-year review, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced today that it will ban all vaping and e-cigarette products sold by Juul. That's right. The FDA took the sweeping step of banning Juul from selling its vapes and its pods in the U.S. The FDA's ruling came over shoddy data of potentially harmful chemicals users may be exposed to while smoking the product. Juul, which started with the ostensibly honorable intent of providing a smokeless alternative for people with nicotine addiction, was soon beset by the growth-at-all-costs attitude that pervades Silicon Valley. They began marketing their products to teens, which led to a massive surge in teen vaping and a whole new rise in nicotine addiction. While the ruling will certainly be challenged in court, it's an important warning to the vaping industry. You can learn more about Juul and its rise in our episode Bejeweled with Lauren Eder, the author of The Devil's Playbook. That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review. It really does go a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Store for some American Dissected merch. We've got our logo mugs and t-shirts, and our safe and effective tees are on sale for $20 off while supplies last. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producer is Tara Terpstra. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz, Ines Mata, and our awesome summer intern, Ella Price. Our theme song is by Ataka Sazawa and Alex Uguiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening.